Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. So last week I was looking at Twitter and one tweet jumped out at me. Damien Eccles wrote, I walked off death row exactly five years ago today. That was on August 19th. Now I thought about that. I thought about meeting him about four years ago. He'd been out of jail for about a year. If you don't remember the name Damien Eccles, perhaps you remember the title West Memphis 3. It's the title of a documentary by Amy Berg. You'll meet her a little bit later on in the podcast. It's also the name given to Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., and James Baldwin, who were convicted on dubious evidence in 1994 of the murder of three young boys. They spent 17 years in jail for a crime that they did not commit. They became a cause celeb with stars like Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder working to exonerate them. They were the subject of several documentaries, including Berg's West Memphis Three. I spoke with them, as I say, about a year after Eccles was released. He was with his wife, Loris Davis, and they talked about adjusting to life on the outside. I thought it was fascinating stuff. So I went back in the vault and I found the interview for you to have a listen to, to share it with you. Think about this. August 16th, 2016, Damien Eccles writes, I walked off death row exactly five years ago today. Think about spending 17 years in jail for a crime you didn't commit and how you'd feel about it, what you'd have to say about it, what kind of attitude you might have developed while spending years in solitary confinement. Now, think about that. Now, listen to the interview with Damien Eccles and Loris Davis. Tell me a little bit about uh, what it means, because this story's been told a, a, a few times, but you weren't available probably to see those uh, films. So tell me what it means to uh, have this story out in such a public way. So at the Toronto International Film Festival, there were hundreds, if not, you know, a couple thousand people there to see it. Tell me a little bit about what that means to you. Well, this documentary actually came about um, due to, at the time that uh, we started working on it, that Peter and Frank came up with the idea there was nothing happening in the case. Mm -hmm. um, we had all this new evidence coming out and the judge had refused to hear it. So Peter said, well then let's get it out to the American people. You know, if the judge refuses to hear it, then let's get it out in the court of public right. opinion. So this, I mean, the film, the filming was taking process, taking place the whole time that the investigation was going on. So they got everything on film. So what it comes down to is this film would have been the case we would have presented in court were we to go to court. Um, there's that, and it also, you know, it differs from the others, the, the previous things that people have done, other documentaries, other TV shows, other books, and that this is the very first time Lori and I ever took part in telling our own story. You know, we were actually producers on, on this uh, documentary. So we allowed Amy Berg, our director, into our lives in ways that we never had with anyone else before. You know, things like just reading our personal letters um, into our personal relationship. We had always been really protective of that and had always kept all media sources outside that before. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and Amy also was really great at getting people to talk to her who would refuse to talk to anyone else. You know, like the judge in the case, the prosecutor in the case, yeah. had never spoken to anyone before and she got them to open up and do interviews. 
Lori, what, I mean, I think I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to ask anyway to hear it in your own words. This wasn't just a process that happened over a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This was years and years, and it must have been frustrating, and it must have seemed hopeless at times. And what was it that kept you just fighting and chiseling away at this? Um, well, Damien, uh, he's an extraordinary person, and our relationship is, I mean, you form bonds during, when you're in, uh, going through something like this that are just hard to explain but they're just um, it, well I just said it, it extraordinary but it was the fact that I knew we were going to prevail I knew we were going to from the very beginning and I refused to let anything any other thought enter my mind so if you wake up every day with that thought in your mind yeah it, it got really hard at times and bleak but we had so much support around us and it was building all the time and so that momentum was very helpful um, and just the fact that we had so much love and support around us but um, Damien was really amazing uh, keeping my spirit, keeping me going, keeping me disciplined, he's very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it seems to me in the, the clips that we hear of phone conversations in the film from while you were still behind bars with you, um, just that that you you were the one that was being encouraging us. I mean, tell me how it's possible to keep um, your spirits up in that situation when you've been in that situation for a very long time and the outcome is uncertain. I don't think it is possible. You know, Lori and I both brought different things to this relationship. I think, you know, like she was just saying, I would try to find things that would inspire her, make her want to fight more, make her feel the sense that we're going to win while what she brought to it was levity, um, humor, lightness. She kept me from sinking down into dark, desperate, hopeless places. You know, she was the one who brought um, the fun to the relationship. So it was like both of us were bringing something that the other one needed, and it was that combined effort together which is what kept us going. What's your life like now? It's a little chaotic yeah. and a little... Um, this um, weekend, particularly, I <laughs> yeah. <imagine. laughs> yeah. You know, Damien's been out just about a year now, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and in some ways it's been a, a, a different kind of learning experience because, you know, there's just no precedent for this, and how do you know how to, what to expect with someone who's come out of prison and solitary confinement mm -hmm. at that. So it's been a process as to how to learn what he needs and how to, to, to it, it took me months to realize that he's got a great deal of trauma and stress to deal with and he has to learn how to live in the world and how do you know how to guide someone through that or to help them through it. But at the same time there's a great deal of joy and, <laughs> and happiness and, and it's just sort of keeping it all somehow uh, contained and just getting from one place to the next. We don't even have a home at the moment. Actually, we're going to have one next week, <laughs> which is great. So it's one thing at a time. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what has been the strangest or the, 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 the biggest adjustment for you? Uh, uh, everything. Yeah. Because at the time that I got out, I had been in solitary confinement for almost a decade. So I literally went from solitary confinement one day to the next day just being thrown back out into the world. And, you know, I went in in 1993. So whenever I came out in 2011, it was a whole different world. So it's really everything. And I think 
if I had to narrow it down, I'd say what it comes down to is choices. You know, you make no choices in prison. So out here, it's like having to choose constantly. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and it, it's having to learn new things all over again. You know, like uh, you know, even how to go to the bank or use an ATM or right. use a computer. What you know, Pinterest all is, all those yeah. things. You know, exactly. like all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th this might seem like an odd question, but do you, in in some ways, in any way, miss the kind of regimented part of your life that was part of your life for so long? In that you didn't have to make decisions and that sort of thing, or is it? I mean, it, it, because it becomes part of your life, I would think, and and the the, the adjustment to move out of that must be very difficult. Mm -hmm. I don't miss it. Um, just you know, even while it's going on in there, the the level of stress and anxiety and fear that you live in is beyond comprehension to most people. You know, every you never even go to sleep all the way. You know, it, it just the slightest noise wakes you up. There were times in the prison whenever you hear a noise and you're on your feet in the middle of the cell ready to fight before your eyes even open up, before you even are conscious of what's going on. It becomes programmed into you so deeply like a reflex. So you're always tired. You're always wore down. You're always on the lookout for what horrible thing is going to come next. So that overrides everything else, you know, so there's absolutely nothing about it that you miss once it's over. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I, I guess, in sort of a broader terms, but but um, it, it's it's rare, I think, for someone who's never been in jail, I think it must be, in, I mean, it, I've, I've never, you know, <laughs> never been, and, and it, it, the idea of it is incomprehensible to me. And you know, on, on the days that you are, were were in there, you had 18 years to think about this, and you knew you were innocent. Uh, how 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 do you rationalize what's happening with your life? I don't uh, I, really. It's I was in a state of deep deep, profound shock and trauma for at least two, maybe three months whenever I first got out. And ever since I've been coming out of that, it really what life has been for me is just trying to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other, mm -hmm. how to keep moving forward, how to, you know, I have so much fear and anxiety and everything else just about, you know, surviving in the world now mm -hmm. that most of what I'm doing and dealing with and coping with is about how to move through that, how to get beyond that. And that's all I focus on, really. Well, the support of not only Lori, but people like Fran and Peter, mm -hmm. Fran Walsh, Peter Jackson, uh, Johnny Depp, Henry mm -hmm. Rollins, must go a long way uh, towards making th the, the transition at least a little bit easier. It has to. Uh, there's oh. no way we would yes. have been able to survive without it. You yeah. know, when yeah. we left Arkansas, we left literally like refugees. I didn't even have a change of clothes. I didn't have a penny in my pocket. Yeah. We had nowhere to go. So it's, I mean, people, it, it's like the support didn't stop. You know, right. once we got out of prison, people have, you know, have been trying to help us get our feet up under us and start a life for ourselves. And there's no way we could have made it without all the help we've been given. And do you feel, in some ways, the, the Alfred plea that was, was entered, when I was watching the film, I'd, I'd read about this, and I obviously had heard on the news, and you know I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware of, uh, of the real ramifications of the Alfred plea. 
And uh, so my take on it is that it's uh, Arkansas saying, okay, listen, we've made an enormous mistake here, but we're not going to pay these guys out for for taking their, you know, 18 years of their lives. We're not going to pay them out. So here's here's a piece of paper. You sign that and you're free. We'll give them what they want, but we're not going to give them everything. And I find it frustrating. (laughs) I can only imagine in the moment that you're torn between the 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 lack of responsibility that they're taking versus the weight of having your freedom. Yeah. And so tell me if you can uh, both of you your reaction to to this when you were first presented with this idea because I'd never heard of such a thing before. I hadn't either. Yeah. I mean, I'm my first reaction as soon as I heard it was you know, I don't care how we do it right now. Mm-hmm. Just get him out of there. And and you know and then once it's sunk in, you do realize that that this is a guilty plea. Mm-hmm. But what we all we knew it was just crucial to get them out of prison, especially Damien, whose health was in such um, dire straits. But it's it's kind of you know Eddie Vetter and I talked a lot during this time, and it was like you know what it's going to be so much easier. It's to fight from the outside, having them on the outside, and we can continue this work. We're still going to do the same work we would have done, and having them in and waiting for this hearing, which could have taken place five years from now, mm-hmm. or they could have strung it out forever. The uncertainty of, of of that, it just at that moment, it was just like yes. I mean, there was no hesitation for me, and yeah, for me too. I knew I was literally I was dying. You know, yeah. my health. Was I hadn't had sunlight or fresh air or anything else in 10 years. I hadn't had any sort of nutrition in 18 years. Um, there were times when I was so sick that I thought, this is it, I'm literally going to die tonight. They're going to come in in the morning and find me dead. Not only that, but you know, the state, their main concern was having to pay us $60 million. Sure. I knew they could have had me stabbed to death for $50 any day of the week in prison. Right. So one way or another whether it was just I was so sick that I couldn't last another five years or whether I was killed in prison I knew I would never live to see the outside of those walls if I didn't take that deal so I you know we knew some of the bad that was going to be attached to it but at the same time it was really like we didn't have much of a choice and and it still affects every single aspect of our lives here whenever we ask for a visa to come here to come here yeah denied and we had to um, you know, get the judge from the case to call and talk to the immigration officials. We had to have you know, all these people write letters of recommendation. I mean, it was nonstop work for like the last week. And we still didn't even know if I was gonna be able to come or not up until two hours before we got on the plane to fly here. Yeah. So that's, I guess, when you talk about fear and anxiety and things, that's I just- and unpacked four times. Yeah. Just not knowing, you know, one second it's okay, we think it's going to work. The next second, no, it's probably not. Then it's okay that you've been denied. Then it's okay what they've decided to reopen the case. And it's just, you, you're just kept on this state of, you know, expecting something, waiting for something all the time. That was Damien Eccles and Loris Davis talking about being one-third of the West Memphis Three talking about adjusting to life on the outside. If you're interested, Eccles has written a book called Life After Death. Uh, He told me at the time he wanted to do tarot readings at the MoMA as performance art. He had lots of plans. Uh, I hope now that he's living a happy and healthy life outside of jail. 
Next up, we'll meet Amy Berg. Amy Berg is a documentary filmmaker. She's probably best known for her film Deliver Us From Evil, which was nominated for an Academy Award and chronicled sex abuse cases in the Roman Catholic Church. She does not shy away from difficult subject matter. And I think when you listen to this interview where she talks about Damien, talks about her relationship with the guys, talks about making the film West Memphis 3 and the difficulties involved, that you'll hear her passion. Here's Amy Berg. This is a story that's been told a few times. People are familiar with it. What was it that really drew you in uh, and made you think, you know, I can, I can really put a new spin on this? Well, first of all, um, when I was approached about this story, it had been 11 years since the last thing that had come out, came out, which was Paradise Lost 2. Right. Um, and there had been so much investigation and evidence. So it was almost like coming into a story with a totally fresh look because I hadn't been involved in the earlier right. stories. And what was it then, I guess, uh, because you're going to spend years on this. It is, in some ways, probably going to take over your life a little bit. So when you're deciding on a project like this, that has to be a consideration, I would imagine. So tell me what it was then about this that you thought, you know what, I'm going to give up a certain portion mm -hmm. of my life for the next little while to devote it to this. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, you're exactly right. When I get a call, like the call that I got from New Zealand, it was basically, I was, I had just come out of something pretty heavy and I wasn't sure if I could commit to it because I was like, you know, it was just daunting. And, and the evidence alone was daunting. The emotional content was daunting, but I just, it's, there's something about this case that is so intoxicating and there's so much information that you just feel like you have to keep going. And so I told myself, I do this little reverse psychology thing, because I understand exactly how I'm going to tell the story. Oh, it'll only take a year, a year and a half. I told myself that. Not true. It never takes a year or a year and a half. It's, no. it's like that thing where people say, oh, it'll just take five minutes. Nothing ever takes five minutes. No. And a story like this, to tell it properly, and I imagine that it's like an onion, right? The more you, the more you start to peel away the layers, mm -hmm. you just find more layers. Right. And I think if we were to still investigate there's still more layers to this story that, that weren't maybe available to you even when you were making the film, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, there are still, we have been trying to get documents from the FBI for two years now. We right. FOIA'd them. There are 200 pages that were redacted from the file. What's in those pages? Mm -hmm. You know, I, there are just so many things. There could be another witness that we don't know about that right. could come forward at a certain point, you know? And when does your commitment to this stop because the, the last film you delivered from me you mentioned was a very heavy film uh, and I think you got some pushback after that came out from religious groups as I recall mm -hmm. the story I mean we, we spoke at the time that the movie yeah. came out maybe I'm misremembering but um, uh, so at what point do you just go you know what my art stands on its <laughs> own and I'm walking away from it yeah. um, I don't know I mean I if you ask me this at Toronto about Deliver Us From Evil, I was probably gonna say the same thing. But I feel like like with this story, actually, the, I've become very close with the, the producers and some of the you know people in the film. And I, I just feel like it's important to keep a tab on it. Right. But I, I don't see myself doing a follow-up or anything like that. I, but I do want to see Damien get exonerated. So I am committed to 
you know, giving information to whomever just to continue to pursue that. Tell me about the day that the Alford verdict was was entered because I don't want to give anything away. It's a I mean, it's public record. People know, mm-hmm. I think. But in the in, in the film, it, it could go either way. For people that don't know, I'll describe it like this. It could go either way. Mm-hmm. And the Alford uh, uh, plea says that you will plead guilty, but you'll be released from jail. It's little used. Frankly, it's kind of hard to understand why it exists at all. Mm-hmm. I think I know why it exists, so that you can't go back and sue for wrongful mm-hmm. imprisonment, that Money. sort of thing. But tell me a little bit about that day, because it had to be unsatisfying. Well, I mean, or mixed emotions at the very least. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really two and a half weeks. I mean, I was in mm-hmm. New Zealand when this call came in, and I had to basically get on a plane and go down to Arkansas and. It was, it was just, you know, waiting to see what Jason was going to say, watching everyone kind of suffering and biting their nails to see, you know, what was going mm-hmm. to happen next. And um, the day that they were released, it hit me when I was watching Damien um, when he said that he didn't want to go through another trial mm-hmm. and it would cost the state a lot of money and it would cost him a lot of money. And that was the moment when I finally realized, oh, wait, this guy shouldn't have to go through this again. There's all this evidence, but you still are putting your hand, your faith in the hands of people that... Well, it went wrong once. Yeah. It could go wrong a second time. Yeah, and the system, yes, there was a change of heart. On the Supreme Court level, mm-hmm. there was a big change of heart, but who knows, you know, who knows what kind of things would happen behind closed doors. Well, locally, it seems to me that they still feel like we got the right guys, or at least publicly, that's what they want to say. We got the right guys. And so the the local officials don't want to have uh, another trial because mm-hmm. if these guys get exonerated, then all of a sudden they're open to lawsuits and, and those pages from the FBI would no longer be redacted, I'm yeah. sure, and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And so, but it, it, it struck me that it was kind of a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. And one that made me mad, frankly, when yeah. I was watching the movie, especially, and I can't remember his name. Scott then. Ellington. Yeah, Scott Ellington. His little, well, we got the right guy, and we did, infuriated me. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Ellington is he did take the time to add up how much money it would cost the state, but 16, he didn't take, bucks or exactly, right? but he didn't take the time to look at the case. Right. He was, you know, he hadn't looked through reams and reams of paper, as he said. But he's, you know, he's calculating money. And it all comes down to something that I really feel strongly about, that we should not be having our, our um, justice officials should not be elected. Right. You know, judges and prosecutors and people that are working within the system should be appointed. Absolutely. The and debt is too high. I yeah. mean, it's like, who, who, what are, who do they owe money to? Who do they owe favors to? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, in particularly, I mean, in the U.S., you've got uh, studies of private jails mm-hmm. and judges taking kickbacks from private jails to send kids there. I got I had one joint on me, end up going to jail for a year for I that know. because the judges make money. It, it, it seems like everything really is ass backwards. We just were talking about this downstairs. The, the last person who interviewed me, um, Howard, I don't remember his last name, but he was with the Philadelphia paper, right. and he, that's where that case came out of. And we were just talking about that 
Because Amy Goodman did an amazing piece on that That's for right. Democracy Now. Yeah. Well, it's it's a shocking, shocking story, and I just think of of you know the, the, the sort of people that we're supposed to trust. Mm -hmm. And you're, I mean, your 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 career, priests, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, exactly, police, judges, all that. Yeah. And, and and it's so hard not to, and it's so difficult for people to go. You know what? We made a mistake. Yeah. Or we did the wrong thing. Or ten years later, a decade later, to look back and go. You know, whoever worked that case made a mistake. Nobody wants to take culpability mm -hmm. anymore. Even the good guys, like the quote, good guys yeah. don't want to take culpability anymore. Yeah, I mean, we're this society um, is thriving on the idea that we have to find somebody to blame for everything. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever wants to accept any culpability, as you said. And it, it's just, I mean, looking in their eyes, like Burnett, you know, he doesn't care. He knows they didn't do it, but he yeah. does not care. Fogelman. I mean, he's burning inside. That guy, I feel like he is, something's going to happen there with him at some point. Um, well, it hasn't gone well for him. No. You know, I mean, this case. That grapefruit. Yeah. Thing, I mean, people yeah. are mad about his yeah. theatrics. Sorry, yeah. but go ahead. Sorry. But yeah, but, but you know, since then he ran and lost mm -hmm. and things have not turned out, I think, the way he was sort of a golden boy, yeah. you know, and, and it hasn't gone well for him. And this case seems to be kind of, in mm -hmm. some ways, at the root of it. I know, and it's the truth is like he said things to me like, my wife would kill me if I, you know, said anything about that. And I mean, he's so fearful of losing the comfort zone he's in. But I mean, how can you even think like that when someone's on death row yeah. based on your actions? Tell me about the guys today. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Jesse is living in Memphis, mm -hmm. and. He went, we took him to Chicago and he did like a case study with the wrongful convictions, right. wrongful confession, sorry, false confessions center, right. Steve Braga at Nor Northwestern University and Lauren Ryder. Um, and he's kind of in a different situation than the other two because he's very close with his dad who is not well. He doesn't want to be far from him, and he, but he doesn't have much opportunity there. Yeah. So it's kind of sad. Um, I, I found that from the film. Yeah. When you see him in the film, the last scene in the film, and the, the people that he's surrounded mm -hmm. by, and they're thrilled to see him back. But I thought, oh, mm -hmm. this guy has no future here. No. And like, and, and it's he's uh, like I don't know. He, but I thought he's going to end up back in jail or something. Yeah. Weird. Something. It, it didn't strike me that there was going to be a really happy ending to that particular no. story. And the truth is, it's good that he's in Memphis, not West Memphis, right. because it's a different state. Um, the cops in West Memphis are notorious for planting drugs in your car or, you know, wherever. And so he's the one that we worry the most about. Um, Jason's studying in Seattle. He's going to college and trying to get a degree, and he wants to be a lawyer. And Damien has a book coming out this month, and he's, you know, he's really... I've spent the most time with him, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's very happy. Um, just He's just such a beautiful spirit. Has he adjusted well to being outside? We see him in the film uh, shopping for Halloween yeah. uh, gear, <laughs> you know. That, yeah. yeah, and and uh, but has he adjusted well? Because there, there's a, a difference between the moment that you get out, and then three months later, yeah, it's and, a year or a year two, later. Yeah. You know? yeah, no, he's doing well. I mean, he really. It's interesting because he is like um, he's so fresh and pristine in terms of like he's like a child in so many right. ways. So he's just always learning something new and taking right. it in, in a man's body, which is great. Yeah. So 
And they're the really happy. It's a new thing because exactly. it wouldn't existed when he went Tw- to jail. Oh yeah. my God, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly getting requests. Will you follow me on and something right. I've never heard of. Pinterest you know, and something Foursquare. Like yeah, yeah, Foursquare. Yeah, yeah, he sent me that the other day. I'm like, what is this? I feel like I don't I have to stay on top of it for Damien. Yeah. But anyway, so he's happy. Oh, good. And um, what's, what's your background uh, in terms of, of, well, no. That's not. I, what exactly is it that draws you towards these subjects? I mean, will you ever make a documentary that is um, about sunshine? And about sunshine and how to corgis. Yeah, I yeah. love corgis. Do you? <laughs> I have a corgi. So does our queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a corgi. Do you? Uh huh. Um, I don't know. I think I don't look at it as dark, but I think I'm interested in complicated right. um, issues that have a gray area that needs to be explored. It's, it's very interesting to me that we label people for everything. And I am so interested in not labeling and trying to find out the why of it all. So, Well, this movie is all about that. I mean, this movie is a, is a, is a perfect example. I mean, Deliver Us From Evil, same idea. I mean, we label the priest in that film yeah. as a good man, and it yeah. turns out not so much. But uh, in this film, it's about kids who uh, you know wear long Matrix-style jackets yeah. and are perceived as different in their what looked to me like rural. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's bigger than a village, not it is a small town, I guess. Just yeah, small it's town, a, right? yeah, it's a very isolated small town. Yeah, too. With, with with not a lot of exposure to people different from the people that have lived there for generations probably right and you know with the very strong religious influence Mm -hmm. there there was just not a lot of pop culture and so someone like damien is going to be struggling consistently well it was interesting because the the portrait that that was painted of him for me in the Mm -hmm. movie was um a troubled kid who was uh, for my money troubled because he was smarter than the people that he was around mm-hmm. and uh stifled by that probably frustrated by that mm-hmm. and you know interested in in you know darker things i mean he was he read about satanism you know, all that stuff which frankly a lot of kids do i mean mm-hmm. this is not unusual here well, in yeah, a city of a, in a large city like we're sitting in right of now, course. but there it must have blown some minds. Particularly, I think at the time because you interview uh, the fellow with the white hair and the beard, the Satan, uh, the, the oh, Satan, Jerry Driver, the satanic cult expert. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, he's something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a normal exploration. He was into actually Wicca, and Wicca. that you know that was considered satanic, and yeah. it's such a peaceful kind mm. of way. So it's really too bad. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to me the, the whole satanic cult thing because what I was picking up from him is that he didn't really particularly know anything about uh, you know anything Mm-mm. he he it was a lot of supposition it was a lot of yeah. ideas it was a lot of like maybe he read in a book one time that yeah. you know and and yet in a court of law his yeah. his opinion was taken seriously yeah I mean it's like people that needed some kind of notoriety mm-hmm. or I mean it's it and here like these are people that don't I don't know he wasn't making a lot of money he was yeah. working a job that he was trying to find power within this this you know organization and here's an opportunity right. to like prove that you know what you're talking about and he jumped on that so 
So is this a perfect storm then? A perfect mm. storm of having three outsider kids in a community mm -hmm. not used to it, having you know, an ambitious district attorney, uh, yeah. the satanic expert who really wanted to make a name for himself and a few extra bucks and get on Geraldo, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. That's exactly what it was. It was a yeah. perfect storm. Yeah, yeah. And what did you learn then throughout this process uh, that surprised you? Just, I think that just like the idea that the truth and faith, you can try to tamper with them right. or you can try to hide them, but... It, I feel like the truth always pays off in the long run if you stick with it, right. you know. And Damien was unwavering in his truth from day one. And at the end of the day, he's now a free man. Yeah. Sort Halloween. of. Yeah, sort of. Well, see, that's the thing. And that, again, you know, real life's not always all that satisfying. Right. <laughs> you know, and, right. and and the way I felt at the end of the movie, because, it, you know, the movie does such a, a, a wonderful job of mm -hmm. piecing this, the, the evidence together. And mm -hmm. you think, well, this is, this is obvious. Right. The, the outcome of this is going to be obvious. Yeah. Because I knew they were free. I had forgotten about or didn't know about the Alford uh, yeah. Alfred, Alfred or Alfred? No, Alfred. Alfred oh. plea, yeah. uh, plea. And so uh, by the time we got to that, I found it enormously frustrating. Yeah, no, I... It's in the moment it was the right thing to do, right. but it's always going to hinder him in some way. Until, yeah. And in the fact that he has to be identified by this case that he should have never been involved yeah. with yeah. is so dark for him to be a West Memphis 3. That's I mean. right. And he'll always be that. Mm -hmm. Is it, it, it? It's interesting. He's got a book coming out. He was mm -hmm. a, a producer on this film. Can you envision a time in his life? And this is a question for him, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, can you envision where where it'll be enough? I'm not going to discuss this publicly anymore. I'm not going to write about it. I'm not going to be that right. guy anymore. I mean, the thing is, like, how does he make a living? Yeah. This is the only thing he has to make a living right, right now. He's had all of his earning years taken away yeah. from him. And schooling He's, and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think schooling, he, he did get his education. His, he's smarter than most people mm -hmm. I know. But he owns this story now, and I right. think that's the only thing he has in order to at least try to earn a living. So I think he'll have to stick with it for a while. But, right. you know, there might be a point where he can walk away from it. I, I hope so for his sake, because right. I know he doesn't want to be defined by it. When you first met Lori... Mm -hmm. Tell me your impression about Lori. Um, I think that we've all heard stories about women who fall in love mm -hmm. with people who are in jail and they get married. And they, they it, it strikes me as an outsider to all of that culture, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that it can't be particularly satisfying. Mm -hmm. And that often, I think, you have uh, desperate people attracted to desperate people. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not always a healthy relationship. This one seems to work, though. It's, yeah, it's, it's a different, she came from a different place. She wasn't coming from a desperate yeah. perspective looking for love. She was actually coming from a person who wanted to help right. someone who needed help. Right. So that bonded them. And and when you first met her, what was your take on her? Oh, I, okay, I was really busy when I got the call. And so I didn't, like, have a lot of time to think about who this person was and the right. case and everything. So I met her and I just kind of got her right away. Right. I understood. So I never had that cliche image in my right. brain, but we did talk about it afterwards and it was kind of like it could have gone either way, but she dispels that myth immediately. Yeah. 
Well, she does in the film too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that was a revelation for me mm -hmm. because um, I knew that aspect of the story. I knew that uh, that Damien, or I knew certainly one of them was married. I'm not sure if I knew all the details going mm -hmm. in. It's hard. To, it's yeah, it's no, all blurry for me now. I can't remember. So much, you know, yeah. and and I knew one of them was married. And and you know, again, I had an idea of what what that relationship might be and that goes out the window very quickly mm. in the film. Yeah, yeah, that's great. She's really such an amazing person. Right. Um, uh, I'll let you go after one more uh, question. Okay. There are uh, lots of archival uh, materials in mm -hmm. the film mm -hmm. um, and uh, the audience that I saw it with was a, 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 I live here so I see everything in advance. Yeah. And there were a lot of us in the theater though and uh, the pictures of the young boys really upset people. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about the decisions made uh, to to include those in. Uh, as a filmmaker, I think you have to, to show mm -hmm. the horror of the crime, but it, they're upsetting images of little boys mm -hmm. who are hogtied and... Yeah, I mean, I think that th those were used in such excess in the trial, and these were the images that the jury and the witnesses and um, the audience obviously mm -hmm. were being shown all the way throughout these trials and this is how these guys got convicted but um, in terms of like the autopsy photos we needed to convince the audience that these turtles were capable of doing right. this and right. so it was a it was difficult because I was finding myself I couldn't look at those in the beginning and then I was finding myself desensitized by the time I finished editing mm -hmm. and it was tough, you know, it was a tough choice, but everyone kind of felt like that was the right thing to do because, you know, Michael Carson was talking about how he was on the stand trying to, you know, give his statements and they had all these pictures right. sitting next to him while he's, you know, trying to testify. And he was lying and being, you know, convinced that his lie was actually helping because that murder was bad. And right, right. So I guess, you know. Yeah, the turtle evidence is, is I mean, but I, I think when you say about being desensitized, uh, if you speak to police who have been homicide cops for a long time, yeah. if you talk to anyone who works in a newsroom, yeah. and, you know, anything that is, uh, has a darker edge to it, it, people find a different way to process it. Yep. And you do get desensitized, I guess, a little and, bit. Yeah, except for these guys did not get desensitized right. to it because these all of these police officers, um, the prosecutor... Um, the juvenile parole officer, I talked to all of them, they, all of them talk about these pictures and how if you saw those pictures, you right. would have done this. And that's another aspect of why we had to show them. Right. Right. I mean, these guys were talking about their own kids. That's not supposed to happen. Right. You're supposed to have public, you're supposed to have a trained official who is not going to get emotional. And every single one of them was emotional. So that's why it happened. That's exactly why they got convicted, was because emotions ruled out over science. That was Amy Berg talking about West Memphis 3. Now, keep in mind, these interviews are about four years old. I just thought, after reading Damien Eccles' tweet, I walked off death row exactly five years ago today, that it was worth going back into the vault, finding these interviews, and sharing them with you. Be sure to come back next Monday. We put up a new show every single week over here at the House of Kraus. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit, so please, come on in, set a spell, and see who's here. It might be one of your favorites. <laughs>